Bible, and I hope that you do, turn with me to a place that you probably wouldn't figure we would start uh, talking about the gospel from, and that's from the gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke. Looking at Luke chapter 24, verse 25 through 27. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. Luke chapter 24 and verses 25 through 27. Luke 24, 25 through 27. This morning we are going to look at the gospel. We are going to look at uh, two weeks in a row. First, we're going to look at uh, what the gospel is uh, and uh, and how it transforms us uh, in Christ. And next week, we're going to look at the results of what the gospel drives us to. Um, how the gospel drives then our mission and our, uh, our passion to see the nations come to faith in Christ. But in this morning, Luke chapter 24, verse 25 through 27, if you're physically able to do so, let me invite you to stand with me one more time as we honor the ring of God's holy and written word. Luke chapter 24, verse 25 through 27, hear the word to us this morning. This is what the word of the Lord says to us. And then he said to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. May you now add blessing to the reading of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So, what is the gospel? I think that for most of us, uh, if you were to go most places... The, uh, the question, uh, I said, what is the gospel, but what is a Christian? What, is, what does it mean to be a Christian? There are lots of different people who, who can answer that in a lot of different ways, right? So, so a lot of different people are going to answer this in a lot of different ways. What is, what is a Christian? What, is a, what does a Christian look like? What is a, what is a Christian uh, supposed to believe, right? Uh, maybe, maybe we could answer that question by maybe asking a, a, a different question, and that would be simply this. How would you complete the following que- sentence? A Christian is someone who blanks, right? A Christian is someone who, you know, is supposed to be a good moral person or whatever the case may be that you would fill in the blank there, right? Uh, there, there are a lot of different people who would answer that question in a lot of different ways, even among a lot of different churches. There are different people. So it is interesting that among the two billion people worldwide who profess to be quote-unquote Christians, right, um, not everyone has the same definition of what it means to be a Christian. Um, so, for instance, someone might say, well, being a Christian means that, you know, I, I, I was born into a Christian family. There's a, there's a brother uh, or a man uh, up at the mission right now. Um, he, uh, he, he would tell me, I am a Christian because my, my parents were Christians. He grew up in, a, in another country, right? He, he grew up... Uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a war-torn nation. And so, uh, you know, north is Islam and south is Christian, so he grew up in a Christian family. It means he must be a Christian. Others would say, well, uh, you know, it, it's a, being a part of the right religious denomination or some part of a religious denomination, right? So this is what it means to be a Christian. In order for you to be a Christian, you must be a part of this or that denomination. Some would even claim to be Christians just because they do certain things, 
right? They don't even, and, and some, and understand this, some of them will do this, right? I've ran across, quote-unquote, Christian people who don't believe Jesus is God. They don't believe Jesus is the, is the Savior. They just believe he's a good guy. They, they, they like the idea of a church because it adds some morality uh, to, to, the li- to their lives and things like that. And so they would still say, but I'm Christian because I, I pray and I go to church and I do certain religious acts, Right, I, I was baptized once. I, I'm very generous. I'm a very generous person. I mean, I don't know that there's any more generous peop- a person than me. Right, I give my money away uh, without even being asked. And so there is a lot of uh, confusion as to the gospel, as to what it means to be a Christian. And it's interesting, though, that as Jesus is explaining to the disciples as they're walking to the road to, uh, um, to Emmaus, uh, there are, he meets two disciples. He comes to two disciples, and they're 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 crying because of because Jesus has died, and of course they're very sad, right? They think that he's 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 uh, you know um, he, he they thought he was the Messiah, and and where does Jesus start with them? He starts with the Old Testament. Now maybe we would say, well, that's because that's all they had, but surely he could have started. Um, from from some other place, uh, some of his own teachings, perhaps, and yet he doesn't do that. He starts with he starts from the Old Testament and he works his way out and from the Old Testament onto his own teachings. Um, and he begins, as it says here in verse twenty seven, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus, it, it, and so when we say, well, what's a Christian? It would be easy to say, ah. John 3.16, that's it. But that really doesn't, it tells me God loves, right? And it tells me God sent his son. But is that the heart of the gospel? Well, I mean, certainly it is part of the gospel, but there's much more to the gospel than just that, right? Things like repentance and faith and, and other things that have to be expounded upon. So it would be easy to say, well, you know, here's, here's the proof verse for you. But in reality, we have to get to the heart of, of why the gospel is necessary first, and then before we can come to the good news. It would be like a doctor walking in to you into, into, a, uh, uh, into your, your, uh, your room as a patient and says, hey, I've got some great news. We can cure whatever disease. And you're like, hey, okay, that's great. I'm glad you can cure that disease. But it takes on a whole new meaning. When he says or she says, and why that's good news is because you have this disease. It's a whole nother story, right? It's like, yes, you know, uh, you know, the doctors can cure whatever. Well, that's great, right? I mean, I, I, I'm happy that they can cure whatever. But then when that doctor turns to you and says, and the reason why this is so important is because you have this. That takes on a whole nother level of thankfulness. And gratefulness and understanding. And so in order to get to, to, uh, to the good news, let's, let's think through what the bad news is. In order, to get to the ba- in order to get to the good news, let's talk about the bad news. So we know uh, early on in the book of Genesis, in the very first book of the Bible, in the very first book of the Bible, we are told that God created a man and a woman. And he placed them in this garden called Eden. And he placed them there and he put them there to tend the garden, to watch over the garden and to to live in fellowship, right? The garden in a very real way is a temple. It is a temple whereby God and man meet together. 
right? And this was a, this was a temple. This was a place uh, that, that where, where we are, where God and man met together. And, they were, and the man and the woman worshipped God in this place, in this garden, in this temple, in this beautiful place. And where they exercised obedient, uh, obedience to God and dominion over all of creation. They were God's visible representation over creation to rule, to rule over creation. They were, they were made to rule over creation. And yet we see, we read in Genesis chapter 3 that it didn't take very long for Adam and Eve to think, the first man and the first woman to think that they knew better than God. And God had told them, don't eat of the fruit of the tree. Because in the moment that you eat of the fruit of the tree, of this particular fruit, of this particular tree, you are going to die. And it says that the serpent, they listened to God at first, and then, the, then a, a serpent, a crafty being, comes into the garden, and he begins to, he deceives Eve, and, and Adam also then eats of the fruit, and the world is plunged into darkness. Spiritual decay, physical decay begins, not just creeping, but, but attacks creation, and creation begins from that moment to decay. It begins to, to die. It begins to die. But notice, notice that God gave a promise in that very moment. In the very moment, in Genesis chapter 3, God gives a promise to Adam and Eve. That is that there is coming a male child who will crush the head of the serpent. And even though that the serpent will strike his heel, he will be victorious. He will be victorious. This man child will be victorious. And so really, if you wanted to boil scripture down... It is this story that unfolds. It is this story. The seed of the woman promised and the seed of the serpent who is seeking to destroy. This is God's unfolding story of redemption. The seed of the man who is to come and the seed of the serpent who destroys. And it ultimately culminates in one person. And that is the man child that was promised. And his name is Jesus the Messiah. He is Jesus the Messiah who was promised, the man-child that was promised all the way back in the garden. Creation groaning, the world groaning, mankind groaning for an end to this war. God ultimately culminating everything into the person and the work of Christ. And this man, this God-man, 100% God, fully God, fully man, this God-man coming into the earth, taking on flesh, becoming a human being, dying on the cross then, raised on the third day to declare his victory over this. This is, the, this is the, the, the bad news as well as the good news of the gospel. And so we read, for instance, if you, if you flip over to Ephesians in chapter 2, you and I will, will see that Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and reminding them, first of the bad news, because he wants to remind them who they were and who they are now, Right, but, but, but listen to what he says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, and you, he has quickened, who were, now listen to this, who were dead in trespasses, that's first, and sins. So the understanding is dead in trespasses and dead in sins. Wherein, in time past, you walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. That's our, that's our manner of life. That's the way we lived our life in times past. In the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. 
So this is the this is the bad news, isn't it? Because when we talk about sin, I mean, pe- people, you know, if you talk to talk to most people about sin, they're like, "I just mean you do bad stuff." But, okay, well, but what is bad? Because bad to you may not be bad to me, right? Unless we have some objective standard, like you're bad and my bad, like like to you, you know, uh, you know, Adolf Hitler may be bad, but to somebody else, it's like, no, that dude ain't bad. Or Joseph Stalin, or any other thing, right? Right, and so it's like it's like whose standard, right? Unless there's objectivity and ob- an objective standard, like like whose whose definition are we going to go off of? Are we going to go off yours? Are we going to go off mine? Who, who's exactly we're going to go off of? And this is why we need objective standards, objective truth, and and this is why God says, if you want to know what sin is, if you really want to know what sin is, it is nothing more than rebellion against God. In every sphere of our lives, every rebellion against God in thought, rebellion against God in word, and rebellion against God in deed. I, mean, I know that's probably very simplistic, but, but hopefully you understand what I'm getting at, right? Sin is a complete and utter rebellion against God in absolutely every possible way that you can think of that and the way it's applied. It is, it is a refusal it is a refusal and a, ref- and a failure to conform to and the breaking of the law of God. And this is, this is something Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2. We all did this. Every one of us in times gone by, we all did this. Like there's no one who was not previously a sinner. Like no one in here ever got a pass. None of us ever got a pass. None of us ever said, well, you know, I never sinned in all my life. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. We were all sinners, all sinners, apart from Christ, apart from Christ. And listen, listen to what Paul, how Paul describes those of us, uh, uh, us before Christ. So listen to this, right? He says here that we were foolish and disobedient toward God. He says that we were deceived. He says we are enslaved by sin. And he says that we were at war with one another, hating and being hated, right? So we just, we just, just, this is who we were before Christ. And, and Paul will later expound this to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how much plainer that is. Like, and yet we meet people all the time. It's like, are you a good person? Yeah, man, I'm a good person, right? I once... Uh, I may have told the story, but I once was uh, in jail visiting, uh, visiting, <laughs> I was once visiting in jail, uh, uh, a, a man who was uh, awaiting uh, a trial for, uh, for some felonies that he had committed. And he asked, um, I, I just asked him, I said, hey man, because we were talking, I just said, hey man, his mom, his mom was a member of the church and she just said, can you please go talk to my son? So I did. I said, hey, man, let me just ask you. So let's just boil this down to brass tacks. You a good person. Do you think you're a good person? He's like, yeah, man. I said, and I listed everything, everything that he had been charged with. And I said, I said, I said, I'm not saying you did this, but I said, if you did all these things, I said, do you still think you're a good person? He said, yeah. And this is what he said to me. He said, because in my heart, I didn't mean it. In my heart, I didn't mean it. So it's like, even though I did this, like it wasn't something that I went out and just did on purpose, right? So people can have, without objective standards, they can have all kinds of crazy thoughts in their head about what's good and what's evil, what's good and what's bad. 
And before our conversion, we, we are described throughout Scripture as enslaved to sin, blinded in our minds to the light of the gospel, right? We are, again, deceived, hard-hearted, and rebellious against God. And in our minds, we are an enemy of God. I mean, these are the, this, is the, this is the bad news. So before we get to the good news, I mean, this is all of the, the bad news that we need to know. Because what does the law of God do? The law of God comes in, and it's meant to crush me. And I know, I know it doesn't sound like, like something that's really awesome and fun and cool, right, in our society today, but the law of God must be brought to bear upon our, this, the hearts and minds of all sinners to help them understand, because we had to be helped to understand that we are apart from Christ. We have nothing. We are, we are in rebellion to God. We are in absolute rebellion to God, and so we must, we must allow the law to do the work of God and to crush the hearts of those who don't know Christ. Not because we're seeking to be mean, not because we're seeking to be better than them, right? Not because we are better than them. We all were once sinners. We are all once were apart from Christ, rebellious to God. And no one should come with an air of superiority when we're witnessing, saying, ha ha, well I at least don't do your sin. No, because if God were to take the things out of your mind and blast them up on a large screen TV, you and I would probably be guilty of things far worse. And so we must be careful that as we're getting to the as that before we get to the good news of God saves sinners, we have to show everyone that we are first every man, woman, boy, and girl that's ever been born are are born sinners, enslaved to our sin dead in our sins and our trespasses before God. But, now let's talk about the good news. But, we are told that Christ is rich in mercy and made us alive in Christ. He made us alive in Christ. As Paul would go on in Ephesians chapter 2, or 2 verses 4 and 5, he says here, he says, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he has loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved. So, so listen, your salvation and the, and the opportunity of salvation for all, all sinners are uh, hinges upon a couple different things here. First, the divinity and authority of Jesus. The divinity and authority of Jesus. You say, well, well why do you say that? Well, I say that Jesus... Jesus, as God and man, taught like no other teacher. He commanded, had command over evil spirits. He had and has the power to forgive sins. He had the power over sicknesses, power over nature, power over death, in that he raised, he raised people like Jairus' Jairus daughter from the dead. And he called people to himself. Jesus did all of this because he wasn't just another dude. He wasn't just another guy that was out there making these outrageous, uh, outrageous things. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that if, that if a man made these kinds of claims and was not who they claimed to be, he would be a devil of, from hell. And I, I, I agree with that. Like any person who would make these types of claims and couldn't back any of them up, my goodness, this man would be a wicked, wicked person. But Jesus, Jesus taught, Jesus had to exercise authority over evil spirits, forgave sins, healed sicknesses, calmed storms, right? Uh, 
raised people from the dead. He called people to himself. And I would even say this, not only his divinity and authority, but in his divinity and in his authority, by taking up the death on the cross, this is what Jesus becomes for us. He becomes our wrath-bearing sacrifice for sin. He becomes our wrath-bearing substitute for sinners. He also becomes the one from whom is possible the removal of all separation between God and man. He is also the one who paid our ransom to God. He redeemed us from the wrath of God. And he saves us. He saves sinners for his own glory. And even in all of this, this is all great that Jesus died on the cross, right? But there's one more step that was necessary for Jesus, Jesus to show his power, and his divinity, and that is in his resurrection. You see, his resurrection validated every claim that he made. His resurrection validated every claim that he made because it demonstrated that he was both divine and powerful and authoritative. Paul would even go on to say in 1 Corinthians, he says, And if Christ be not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So it's not possible to have, a, to have a, uh, a worldly Jesus, a Jesus devoid of his power and his authority and, and his divinity, right? It's not possible to have that Jesus because Jesus won't be taken like that. Jesus says, listen, you either accept me for being who I say I am or, or you don't. There is no in-between here. There's only one option if you're going to be reconciled to the Father, And in Jesus doing this, we're told in Romans chapter 4 that Jesus has shown his victory over sin and death and in his resurrection has given a promise that all who believe in him will be united with him and will be likewise resurrected. And so Jesus gives to us this idea, this understanding of of, God of being, um, of, of being not some good man. He doesn't give us that idea. He gives us the, the, the teaching and the doctrine that he is God. He is God robed in flesh. This is why Titus, Paul writes to Titus in Titus 3, 4, and 5, but when the kindness of, and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of, of a righteous, the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. And so salvation then ultimately comes down to this. We see our sin. And we see Christ as the great Savior. And then by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are saved. Because Christianity is the farthest thing from, most, from, from world religions that you can get. Do you want to know why? Because the world religions tells you everything you need to do and continue to do to be in the favor of the gods. And I would even say, you know, well, you know, even if you don't, even if you don't buy into other gods or goddesses, right, e- even, even our secularism tells us what we need to continue to do and not do in order, in order to stay in, in, in other secularists' good graces, 
And so it's all about doing, and you have to continue to do, and you have to, you have to continue to do this in order to stay in the good graces of God. But Christ has already done salvation. And Christ calls us to rest in him, to repent of our sins and to flee to Christ in faith, trusting not in your works or my works or anybody else's works, not in my word or your word or anybody else's word, but in Christ's works and in Christ's word we rest, repenting of our sins, trusting in the righteousness of God, looking to Christ I remember when I was, I was five, I remember my first real theology lesson when I was five years old. We were driving down the road. My daddy was in the front. Of course, I was sitting in the back. Of course, this was, right, he had a, uh, like a 1978, uh, like a um, uh, Impala, and he loved this thing. And I remember we were driving back from church. My mom and sister had stayed home, and I don't remember why. But I remember I was, I was, I was in the back seat. We were driving home, and my dad asked me, he said, son, what did, you, what did you think of what the preacher said? And I said, well, dad, I said, it was a good sermon. I said, and I've got good news for you. I didn't sin today. My dad said, what? You didn't sin today? I said, no, dad. I said, I, I, didn't, I didn't do anything bad. Yeah, I said, I didn't bug my sister. I didn't bother her. I didn't steal her toys. I didn't rip her heads off her Barbie dolls. I didn't do none of that. I didn't make my G.I. Joe kill her Barbie dolls. I didn't do none of that, dad. And my dad, I'll never forget the question my dad, and this, this went home for me even as a five-year-old little boy. I'll never forget, my dad just sort of chuckled from the front seat. And then after a moment of silence, he said to me, Tim, have you thought anything bad today? I said, well, yeah. He said, son, that's a sin. And I was crushed. I was crushed because I had sinned. I thought I was doing so well. But you know what? Jesus is a faithful and gracious Savior who saves sinners who will recognize their sin and flee to him in grace. Because God's standard, because it's easy for us to be like me at five thinking, man, I, did, I didn't do anything bad, I didn't do anything wrong, I'm, I'm good. But James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. God's standard is 100% perfection. And the only one who has ever established that for sinners through his divine authority, through his divinity, through his substitutionary death and resurrection is Jesus Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, was a famous pastor in England in uh, the, uh, the 1900s. That sounds weird saying that, but the, uh, the mid, middle part of, of last century. He says, but God... These two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. We were sinners, but God chose to save sinners. We were sinners, but God chose to send the Savior into the world to save sinners. Fourthly, though, I want to show you something else that not only is, 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 is salvation required, from beginning to end, our trust in Christ. But Christian, I, I, I want us to remember that salvation is carried through to completion by God. And I hope you'll find some assurance in remembering the gospel. Because for most of us, I'm sure, for most of us here today, it's probably old hat. Everything I've said to you is like, oh yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that, I know that. But we need to be faithful to preach the gospel to ourselves. And remember the faithfulness of Christ to us in the gospel. 
We need to remember that it is Christ who saved us, that it is Christ who has redeemed us from the, from, from the sin and from, uh, from the clutches of, of, of Satan. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who has brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of light, right? Because we recognize only two kingdoms, right? We recognize the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. That's the only two kingdoms we recognize, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. That's it, right? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. And God has brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of light through faith alone and Christ alone. And God has done this. And so I would say to us, Christian, this morning, I don't know where you're at, but if you have truly trusted and, and, and believed in Christ, there will be times when you will face discouragement and perhaps even doubt. But if you have truly placed your faith and trust in Christ, you need to remember that he who has saved us holds us. He who has saved us holds us. And he who holds us will cause us to persevere. He who, he who saves us holds us, and he who holds us will cause us to persevere. Because it is God who initiates from beginning to end salvation. Right? We, don't get any, we don't get any say, we're not like, ha, I did that. No, we don't get to say that. I don't get to say, ha, I did that. No, 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 that's not how this works. From beginning to end, it is a work of God. It is what we call monergism. Mono, one, right? One work of God, right? From beginning to end, it is God's work in us. It is God doing it for his glory. And God saves us. And God saves us to glorify himself. Christian, you and I need to remember that, that there, there are reasons then for, for why God has done this. And non-Christian, I would say to you that, that there are reasons you need to understand why God saves sinners. God did not save us because we're righteous or we're inherent, we're, we're, we are inherently worthy or we have good qualities, right? But God saves us for two purposes, two reasons. One, to glorify himself and for us to enjoy him forever. That's what the Westminster Standard and, and the Westminster Catechism as well as the, the Baptist Catechism, the Keech's Catechism, right, uh, um, says. It says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So for all of us, how does this apply? How does this practically then apply as we sort of draw close to all this? How does this all practically apply? Well, let me say a couple different things. I think this applies differently to different people. So for those of you who may be here who have not trusted, faith, trusted in Christ, it's clear. Come to Christ. Repenting of your sins, trusting in Christ, resting in the finished work of Christ. Come to him. Come to him. Do not labor or do not, do not waver. Do not tarry any longer. Flee to Christ. That's it. Period. The rest of us, I think there are, there are a couple other applications for those of us who are in Christ. I think there's a couple more applications for us and for the church as well. And I like, I like how the English poet, John Maysfield, he, he, wrote, a, he wrote a play. And, of course, I'm, I'm not putting this anywhere close to on the scriptural level. But, but it is interesting that in this play, um, the play is all about Jesus' trial. And in the trial and his crucifixion and then resurrection, um, John Maysfield, he, he, he sets this out. 
There's a scene where Pontius Pilate's wife comes to the centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion. And she simply asks him, do you think he is dead? To which the centurion says, no, my lady, I don't. To which then Pilate's wife replies, then where is he? To which the centurion replies, let loose in the world where no one can stop him. And Christian, I think it's good for us to remember this. Christ is not stoppable. His kingdom is not stoppable. His gospel is not stoppable. No one can withstand him. No one can say to him, what are you doing? The history bins are filled. The dust bins of history are filled with dictators and tyrants who tried to suppress the gospel. And the gospel still goes And they are in the dustbins of history. The gospel plowed them and their kingdoms under. And the gospel conquers. And it's good for us then as Christians to be humble about preaching the gospel. Faithful in sharing the gospel as God gives us opportunity. And to apply this in the sense that we have assurance of salvation. Church, it's good for us to apply this so that we can be encouraged and, and, and quieted in our hearts in the, do, in the days of dark doubt that at times the Lord allows us to go through. And also I would say this, that as a result, then our, our works that you and I do as Christians, individuals, families, whatever the case may be, it should be motivated from the grace of God and the love of God from which we are now motivated, not, not pridefulness, right? Not pridefulness. We're not, yeah, we're going to do this. No, it is Jesus' gospel that tears down nations. It's the gospel that destroys and plows nations underneath. It is the power of God to salvation. And so you and I as Christians need to remember that there is no force in all of the world that can stop the gospel. I think sometimes we take such a, such a, such a small view of things right and christians i think we i think we're guilty if we're not careful like we look at the past 2000 years we're like oh what's such a long time but in the history of the world is that really a long time i mean in a world that is however old that you think it is uh, biblically i i i i i probably place it somewhere between 6 and 10,000 years old right but 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 in 10,000 years i'll say it's at the oldest at 10,000 years old is 2000 years even really that long no Look at what God has done. Nations rise, nations fall. God still reigns. God does all that he does for his glory. God does all that he he does. And and brothers and sisters, let me me encourage you in this. Let me encourage you in your work of the gospel and for the the sake of the gospel. Though, Though we will grow old and decay or maybe even be murdered for our witness, the gospel is unstoppable. The nations will be plowed under. The nations will be plowed under by the gospel. There is no question. God is victorious. And there is none who can stay his hand. There is none who can say to him, as, as, as even Nebuchadnezzar, the wicked king, right, was brought to his face and declared in Daniel chapter 4, who can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? Right? 
So we as God's people have confidence in Christ. We have confidence in the gospel. We have confidence that God is at work in the world and among the nations. And we take up our part in his mission. Realizing that there is nothing that will stop him. Let our confidence be in Christ. Let's pray. Father. May you help us this morning to look to look to Christ and see all the glories of Christ and all the glorious mercy of Christ in the gospel. All your glorious mercy, Father, in Christ in the gospel. We thank you, Father, that it is a Trinitarian gospel, a gospel where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are at all work constantly glorifying and honoring the name of God. We would ask now that you would help us. We would ask now that you would guide us. We would ask now that you would, you would enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit, those of us who are in Christ, to, 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 to worship and sing of your glories. And those of us who may be here who don't know Christ, that they would lift their voices and cry out to you and be saved. Lord Jesus, may you do your work for your glory. In Jesus' name.